Notorious Narratives. Welcome to Notorious Narratives. I'm Jen. And I'm Robin. And we're going to get into talking about a subject in just a couple minutes, but I just definitely want to remind everyone about our Patreon. Uh, For those of you who have not checked it out, if you go to patreon.com slash notorious narratives or you can just go to notoriousnarratives.com we have all the links available there for our patrons we do two extra episodes a month mm-hmm. as well as some fun swag that we do from from time to time we try to do like three or four times a year send out like a little bit of a special gift we have a couple of special gifts coming to our patrons very soon we did some fun branding this weekend. and a Yeah, good, and calligraphy. A good friend of ours has been doing some serious calligraphy. Also, I would like to thank Kirsten, who is one of our avid listeners, uh, who messaged me on our Instagram. You guys are always me- welcome to message us mm-hmm. on the Instagram or email us at notoriousnarratives at gmail.com. We always want to hear your show ideas. Um, she hit me up yesterday with an idea, and I was like, you know oh, what? Yeah. That's a story that I've I've heard about and I've thought about, and I'm going to talk about it. Perfect. So Thank you, Kirsten. So yeah, thanks, Kirsten. So lately, Robin and I have been talking a lot about the home DNA kits. I recently ordered one and found out that a lot of my family's lore is not true. For instance, my grandmother always said that she was Native American and that her parents and grandparents had been part of the Trail of Tears relocation. Me, I'm pale. Born with blonde hair, bright blue eyes. So I was always like, yeah, all right, sure. But, you know, no one really knows because genetics can be funny that way. So I knew that it was possible that maybe I just didn't exhibit those traits. But the rest of my family has this long, dark, pin-straight hair and dark eyes and a serious ability to tan. So I just thought that I was the weirdo. So I happily sent off for my DNA kit. You know, I get it. A lot of people have issues with the DNA kits. I'm probably giving rise to the machines. This is how the Terminators <laughs> will take us over. I, I get it. I yes. know there's somewhere that someone's just housing all the like human DNA just so they can mm-hmm. make people. Probably something horrible like that. I imagine. I not because I really don't want any more of me out there. <laughs> yeah, but they might just take a part of you, right? They might oh, take the de- the gene that does something so awesome. so bad forever. I know. I do, has that. Please. please do not clone me. You do not want to deal with Ugh. what I have going on here. My heartburn alone. Is, <laughs> but without getting too personal, I have serious reasons why I wanted to do my DNA. So I sent it off. And the results are in. And I am 0% Native American. None. Nothing. In fact, I'm only from four countries. Great Britain, Scandinavian countries, a little touch of German. So, like, if you look through there, it's like, okay, so mm-hmm. you've got, like, England, Ireland, Scotland, yeah. Germany, my family, Norway, you know, Sweden. your family might have high-fived at one point. Yeah. But like, other than that, it's like. Not only that, but I also found out that my aunts, who had also done similar testing on the same website, were also 0% Native American. So there was a time that we respected our elders and their stories, <laughs> right? And, I mean, we called them stories, but really they're tales, Mm-hmm. They're folklore. I'm a little nervous myself because, um, you know, my mom, she, when I was growing up, she told me that I was also Native American. I was part Cherokee. I didn't do my uh, my lineage, so I don't know if I am Cherokee or not. But it's yeah. funny because when we first met, we bonded over the fact I that know. we were like we were French, Cherokee. And Cherokee. French and Cherokee. I'm like, <laughs> like I'm French so and Cherokee. am I. And now you're not. I'm zero of, a, of either now, of those things. Right. And if, yeah. if I'm not, will you sleep with my friend? 
Of course. I mean, hopefully you're still my friend now that I'm 0% of either of the cultures that I believed I was. Like, anyway, I get you. So, right. So like, you know, for centuries, the only way that we really had to understand our family's history was through the stories we're told. Yeah, absolutely. And there was a time when there was no way to prove or disprove no, a person's a personal story. history. It's a right? story. Man shows up in your town. He says he's from Germany. You believe him. Yeah. Like there's nothing to prove or like, disprove that, like, right? Am, am I like, is my mom trying to like get my childhood like with Pocahontas? I just always thought my mom was trying to get me to go to college for free. Right, like if you're like one sixteen oh, Cherokee, well, no, my mom, my mom used my my her father as like the military. So like she's like, oh, you're a military brat, you could do. It. I'm like, I'm not. You're I'm, not. It, you did not get to go to college for free. But you know, like my story, now there is a significant way to disprove all of these mistruths, these intentional or accidental, anecdotal or passed down from generations stories basically these home dna kits are ruining family history so tonight i'm going to tell you the story of bobby dunbar and how dna changed the history of one of the most sensational stories of the 20th century Ooh, okay bobby was born in 1908 the first child of leslie and percy dunbar in the summer of 1912 was a particularly hot summer without the reprieve of air conditioning or even ice The only source of relief was water. So to beat the heat, the Dunbar family decided to take a trip, a little vacation, to a nearby lake. With the heat becoming unbearable, they decided to head into the bayou to cool off and enjoy some family time together. On August 23rd, 1912, the Dunbars packed up their bags and made their way north to the city of Obelossus, towards Swayze Lake. It was here on this trip with relatives where the story truly begins. On that night, Bobby wandered, or perhaps snuck off, or maybe he was lured away from his family's camp. When the family realized little Bobby was gone, the alarm was sounded. An immediate search was underway, at first by family, then by hundreds of volunteers, who combed the lake's cloudy waters looking for any sign of the missing boy. So, had Bobby drowned? Had he fallen victim to one of the many alligators that roamed the lake's waters? Had he been kidnapped? The latter seemed the most possible, as rumors swirled that an unknown man had been seen in the area. Yet, despite the extensive search, no firm clue was ever found indicating Bobby Dunbar's fate or whereabouts. But another thing to really know about this lake is it's not really a lake, but rather an alligator-infested swamp. (laughs) Jesus. But of course, you know us, and the story doesn't end there. The disappearance of Bobby Dunbar will soon become a national headline. It pays to have money and a good reputation. Percy, his father, was a well-known real estate agent around town, and he immediately paid a detective agency to print postcards, complete with Bobby's picture, and he sent them to every county official from Texas to Florida. Newspapers were fascinated with the story, and both police and citizens were on the lookout for little Bobby. Then, after eight months, in April of 1913, the Dunbars learned that a child roughly fitting Bobby's description had been found in the company of William Cantwell Walters, a handyman who earned a meager living traveling through the South and working as a handyman. He was known for his ability to repair pianos. Percy and Lessie traveled from their hometown of Appalousis, Louisiana, to southern Mississippi, where Walters had been arrested for kidnapping 
and where the boy was currently being held by authorities. Reporters from that era couldn't seem to agree on any of the details, though. It seems that there was a good amount of storytelling and headline grabbing going on, so it is difficult to know the truth of what actually happened. You know, the little things. Like, if in fact the Dunbars were able to recognize the child as their own. There are varying accounts in which the child saw Lessie and screamed with open open arms crying, Mother! And other accounts where he just cried quietly. Some stated that the parents weren't sure that the boy was Bobby, and that the child himself did not seem to recognize his own brother, or the parents themselves. It wasn't until a day after their initial meeting when Lessie gave the boy a bath and said that she recognized the markings on his body. It was then that she identified him as her missing son. What markings? Uh, moles and scars. Oh, I thought it was going to be a room, but like, oh, that was a scar I left. No, I, I, they I just, was thinking the worst. Were, it was Sorry. very casual. It was knowing you, like I was thinking the worst. Sorry. <laughs> I like how you're like knowing me. Like I'm the one who knowing made the scars. You. As a child. No, knowing you, I'm like I know you're knowing a story about I know kid that was found years after he was like disappeared <laughs> because of scar he left behind by his mother. <sighs> okay, sorry. That is not what I'm going to tell. The child returned to Opalousis with the Dunbars receiving a hero's welcome, complete with a parade and other festivities. And that is where the story should end. Sweet baby angel, home with his parents. No, no way. Parade, band, fanfare, bad nope. guy caught, and in jail. Nope. But, and this is a pretty significant but, like a Karn- Kardashian-level but. But! <laughs> but with a ton of T's. T-t-t-t-t-t-t-t-t-t-t-t. A Brazilian butt lift level of butts. The handyman, Mr. Walters, insisted that the boy that the Dunbars had claimed was their own son, Bobby, <gasps> was actually a child named Bruce Anderson, who was the illegitimate son of his brother and a farmhand named Julia Anderson. I want to say something, but I'm afraid that I might ruin it. Go for it. Is this like milk carton good? No. Oh, no. Okay. <laughs> Never mind. Continue. <clears throat> also... He said that he had been given custody willingly by the child's mother and that he and the child had been traveling through the American South since February of 1912, a full six months before the disappearance of Bobby Dunbar. What? Go ahead. What? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, <laughs> so the story goes that um, there was this gentleman, Mr. Walters, and he worked on pianos and kind of traveled around. He was yeah, a handyman. So he had this kid with him the entire like, And his brother concert. had had this illegitimate child with one of the farmhands on the Walters farm. I don't know if it was his brother's farm or like his parents' farm. It was a farm. But there was a kid. And this woman apparently was in dire straits and she could not take care of her child. Okay. And he was like, well, I'll take the kid with me because... For him, being a handyman, being a person, he can use extra hands, extra help. But also, more importantly, the thing that he tells his family down the line, the reason why it was so important that he had a kid with him is if he shows up at a house with a kid, no one's threatened by him. He also kept the kid fed and safe. And apparently it was kind of like kind of family. Yeah. It's like it's like his nephew. Yeah. So it's like. He knows that he's going to be traveling and working. When he goes to these people's houses and he's there working and talking to women, they're going to treat him better because Mm -hmm. he has a kid. Absolutely. And 
it's you know it's his nephew and it probably, it's company and they're just buds they're it's just company. traveling around and it also saves a kid it keeps a kid off the streets so even he, though this guy's going street to street it still keeps a kid off the streets you well know? he knew 100 percent that this woman could not take care of the kid yeah. that was that there was no place on the farm so the for kid this was going to be sold no matter what the kid was going to go somewhere mm-hmm. yeah. so he took him you know, I'm sure he didn't provide him the best life. A lot of the memoirs say that he remembers like sleeping in the woods and like around campfires and in barns. It's and a things lot like better that. than what he would have been. Well, I mean, yeah, it's it's hard if you to say, say with his mother. It would have been yeah. So that's a little bit of the story of like Walters and his story about what but, was going on. But now, like, now right. what? So upon hearing of Walters' arrests and the discovery of the boy. This woman, Julia Anderson, who was supposed to be the mother of the child who Mr. Walters had with him, Bruce Walters, she travels from North Carolina to Louisiana to attempt her own identification. But just like Leslie Dunbar, Anderson seemed to have trouble saying with certainty if the boy was her son. The police had decided that a lineup would be the best way to go to see if this was in fact his mother. They brought in five boys of similar age, one by one, and let Julia see them. When the recovered child entered the room, she asked, Is this the child that you found? But received no answer from the police. And the boy made no signs of recognition to her, even when she offered him an orange. But a day after her first attempt, Anderson returned to the police station and stated that 100% The boy that they found in Walter's care was, in fact, her child. The press went wild. She received harsh criticism from both local and national newspapers, questioning her moral fitness to be a parent. Remember, we're in the South, the Deep South, 1913. Julia, at this point, had had three children by two different men. Neither of them were her husband. And, at this point, She had lost all her children in just a year. A daughter she gave up for adoption. A baby whose sudden death she was wrongfully blamed for. And now Bruce. But the newspapers were not sympathetic. Why this child? Why is it because she lost all the other ones? She's going back to get him? So I think that she had the one she'd given up for adoption. Probably around the same time that she gave Bruce to this gentleman. Yeah. The other one had died. Maybe all of those things are tied together. Maybe the child died. She was... Or or maybe it's just like... Getting blamed. And she wants them back. Or, you know, she hears about it and she's like, Jesus, like, I gave him to his uncle. I didn't just say that anyone could have him. Mm-hmm. She's like, I didn't give him away. I sent him to oh, go so, work with this man. So now I want him back. She's like, that's my kid. I'm going to yeah. go get my kid back. But... You know, she doesn't have the best past. And in an article uh, titled Julia Has Forgotten by Jerome G. Beatty, there's a quote. Her long journey has been in vain. She had not seen her son since February of 1912, and she had forgotten him. Animals don't forget. But this big, coarse, country woman, several times a mother, she forgot. She cared little for her young. Children were only regrettable incidents in her life. The press implied that she was a prostitute, called her illiterate and naive. 
Anderson was also incredibly poor and had no money with which to put up a fight for custody. Therefore, despite the disputed identification, a court-appointed arbitrator ultimately awarded custody to Percy and Lessie, officially establishing the child's identity as Bobby Dunbar. So that basically seals the deal that, in fact, this is Bobby Dunbar, that he was kidnapped by William Walters and then returned to the family. Walters went on trial in St. Landry Parish, Louisiana. That's where the lake had been located. He was tried for kidnapping, and in Louisiana, kidnapping is a capital offense, meaning that if he was found guilty, Walters would face the death penalty, which at the time would have meant the gallows, a public hanging. Julia Anderson testified, as did many residents of Poplarville, Mississippi, saying that they had seen the boy in Walters' company, before Bobby disappeared. But that did not change the outcome. Walters was convicted and sentenced to life in prison. However, with the help of a good attorney, the verdict was overturned a few years later on a technicality. But since the first trial had been so expensive, the prosecutors decided not to seek a new trial and rather set Walters free. Walters died in the late 1930s of sepsis, from a wound received from a splinter that he had got while working for a family in Florida. A splinter? Yeah. He died of a splinter. All the time. Yeah, but you pulled it out, and if it got infected, you went somewhere. <laughs> this guy did not do those things. He probably left it and was like, hey, I can't get it out. And then it probably got swollen and angry and more angry, and he probably kept cutting it open with, like, a rusty blade. So it was time. Like, he, like, he took died. It took a long time. I'm sure it was not quick. And so it goes. I have done other stories similar to this. And justice always has a price tag. But inevitably, after the trial, life just goes on. Julia Anderson settled in the town where the trial took place. She was embraced by the community there. She married and had seven additional children. She worked as a nurse and a midwife and became a staunch Christian. Julia never forgot Bruce, the son from whom she had been separated, and made sure that her younger children knew about the existence of their older brother, Bruce. Then, we have Percy and Lassie Dunbar, and for them, things did not go quite as well. And in 1927, they obtained a divorce that had been preceded by years of clashes over parenting decisions and allegations of infidelity. Percy died a few years later, in 1931, while Lassie died in the 1970s. Then there's the center of the story, Bobby himself. He married in 1935, and despite his dramatic beginnings, led a happy life as an adult. He worked as a salesman and raised four children before passing away in 1966. Though, as good southern towns do, they never stopped whispering, and there were still questions surrounding Bobby's identity. But time quiets even the loudest of critics, and with Bobby's death, the rumors faded. Though the whispered questions surrounding his identity had never completely faded, it seemed that with Bobby's death, the passage of time, those queries would eventually come to an end. Life goes on, and so do families. The rumors and stories never really left the Dunbar family. And one relative in particular just wanted the truth. This is Margaret Dunbar Cutright. She is the granddaughter of Bobby Dunbar. Margaret, out of everyone in the family, was captivated by the legend of her grandfather's kidnapping. I love how it's told. 
I love how she knows the story. Yeah. Like it's, it's, it's a passed down generation yeah. kind of thing. And she I, I knows. think that's fantastic. Yeah. She's like a little girl and she would beg her grandmother to tell the story to her over yeah, and over I'm, and over. I'm pretty sure that she's wondering like what her grandfather's mother was like. And then when she finds out the truth, she's like, oh, wow. Like, what's like, all right. So I have other. No, no. no, It's just like, it's this whole thing. Yeah. But no. Because for her, Bobby was four Mm -hmm. during this kidnapping crisis. He grew up. He had brothers and sisters. He went to school. He graduated. Mm -hmm. His parents got divorced, but he came from means. Like, it was a decent family Mm -hmm. that had money. And then he had kids and his kids had kids. So she grew up hearing this story about her grandfather's life Mm -hmm. and this kidnapping from this lake, this wild story of how they went on vacation and he just got taken away and for eight months was missing. Mm -hmm. What happened during those eight months? Where was he? What, What was going on? You know, it's a fascinating story. I imagine a little bit of myself in this woman that, like, she just couldn't let go of this story, that there was something in it that she was just like, I have to get to the bottom of it. I need proof. So she's obsessed with this story. Then in 1999, her younger brother, Robbie, died in a plane crash. A month later, she's sitting in the den talking to her dad, and he hands her a scrapbook and says this was her great-grandmother's. So this is Lessie's scrapbook, mm-hmm. Lessie Dunbar's scrapbook. And it's stuffed with photographs and letters and newspaper clippings, all from the early 1900s. And they're all about her grandfather's kidnapping. Oh, I would flip the shit. Oh, my yeah. God. And this is where it started. And she went down a path of discovery that would change the entire history of her family. The legend that she had so romanticized in her head was there in black and white, Hundreds of newspaper clippings, all of them contradicting the previous one. She read article after article about Julia, then found a Julia Anderson listed on a genealogy website. The listing had a note below it that said that she had a son who had been previously kidnapped and renamed Bobby Dunbar. This is not something that she had ever heard in the story. Oh, my God. And she's like, what the fuck? What's going on? Why are they saying that? My father was kidnapped and the man went to jail. And he came home to his family. She wanted answers. She wanted proof. She wanted DNA. But the rest of the family, including her father, Bobby Dunbar Jr., was not so sure. Eventually, after years of goading, her father consented to a DNA test. And they compared his DNA to one of his brother Alfonso's sons. The result? Not a match. The child, whom Percy and Lessie Dunbar had taken home and raised as Bobby Dunbar, had never been their biological son. Boom. This blew up their family's history. The legend, the lore, the stories. They brought home a kid that wasn't theirs. You ask, how could that happen? Well... There's a few things. For me, I say that there is certainly an element of prejudice and classist sentiment that runs throughout this history and this story. Julia was poor. She had children out of wedlock. 
while on the other hand, Leslie Dunbar was a married woman who enjoyed a comfortable lifestyle and social status in her community. The story was almost completely manufactured by the media. The people wanted a happy ending, and that happy ending did not entail an unmarried farmhand mother. They wanted the missing child to be Bobby so he could go home to a good family. You might ask, why did the Dunbars identify Bobby as their own? Well, in initial reports, Leslie said that it was not him. And then afterwards, she said she wasn't sure. And then the next day, she said, I think that's him. For me, I think it was pure guilt. To know that you took your child to the place where tragedy befell him is certainly a good enough reason to try to fix it. With just a little lie. I mean, they had a good home. They would make a nice life for him. Maybe they were just trying to fix it. Then, you might ask, why did Julia have such a hard time identifying this child? Well, I have a two-year-old. She changes so fast. If I had not seen her, had no pictures of her, and she had been gone for over a year, I might have a hard time as well. And I think you would too. And as far as a child identifying their mother, if this child left at like two and a half years old, they're not going to recognize their mother when they're four. Julia's son, Bruce, had been gone since February of 1912 and looked much different than when he was discovered a year and a half later. Thereby, that makes her uncertainty a little more understandable. And then you might ask, why didn't he recognize his brother? Like, if he had only been gone eight months, the parents don't recognize him. He doesn't recognize his brother. They should. They should. If he's only been gone for eight months, he should probably recognize his little brother and his parents should recognize him. It's only been eight months. Also, the papers refused to place side-by-side photographs of the two children. Oh, wow. Because it was very clear that they were not the same child. So the man who grew up as Bobby Dunbar is not Bobby Dunbar. He has no relation to the Dunbar family whatsoever. But how can they actually find out if he is Julia's child, if he is Bruce Dunbar, this child that Julia, the farmhand, gave to Mr. Walters? Well, there's only one way to do that, and that would be to exhume the body of Julia Anderson and Bobby Dunbar himself, which neither of the families are willing to do. So while it seems pretty obvious that it probably is, the granddaughter Margaret, through her DNA, has found that she has links to the Anderson family genetically. So she, it, he probably is Bruce Anderson. But the 100% certainty will never be there because those families are not going to dig up their loved ones and get DNA from them. But the real question, after all of this, is what happened to the real Bobby Dunbar? Though, of course, his true fate has never been determined, it seems logical to assume that Bobby wandered off and fell victim to some misfortune. Perhaps he drowned or succumbed to an animal along the lake. Therein lies the true tragedy of the story. For although the boy who grew up as Bobby Dunbar lived most of his life separated from his biological relatives, his ultimate destiny was a happy adulthood, which was certainly better than the fate that likely befell his namesake on the shores of that Louisiana swamp. And that is the story of Bobby Dunbar, a man who became two people and whose story remains a mystery that even DNA can't solve. Just another notorious narrative. That poor guy was 
taken down by an alligator. Thank you so much for listening. If you're enjoying the podcast, there are a couple of things that you can do to help us out. You can leave a positive review wherever you're listening now. You can also go to patreon.com forward slash notorious narratives, where you can access content that is exclusive for our patrons. And remember, keep it weird and never stop exploring.